You're listening to Hey everyone, welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue, and I'm coming at you in this intro solo um, since my co-host Rira Yu is currently feeling a little under the weather, though you'll hear her later on in our author chat with Melissa De La Cruz. Um, we're so excited to have Melissa with us for the first time on Books and Boba, uh, especially after covering her books in our book news and book club discussions for like since pretty much the inception of this podcast. Um, we're talking to Melissa about her novel, The Headmaster's List, a uh, YA thriller that came out a few months ago about a group of high school students who get involved in a fatal car crash after a party and how that accident unravels their high school uh, society, so to say. As you may expect, we had a great conversation with Melissa uh, where we talk about the book as well as her long storied career as an author. So yeah, please enjoy this author chat with Melissa De La Cruz. We're here with Melissa De La Cruz, the number one New York Times bestselling author of various acclaimed books, including Alex and Eliza, the trilogy, Disney's Descendants novels, the Blue Blood series, and the Summer on East End series, as well as the Chronicles of Never After series. Uh, Welcome to the show, Melissa. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So we read something in between back when it came out, I think in like 2016. And we've yes. been wanting to talk to you ever since then. Oh, that's so nice. I'm around. <laughs> I'm glad we finally got to connect. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you know every month we go over the latest book, like publishing news, and there's always, almost always a Melissa Taylor Cruz joint in there. So yeah, <laughs> like it's, it's, um, it's, really cool that we finally get the chance to sit down and talk to you about not only your latest book but also like talk to you about being such a prolific author i mean you know we always love to start off our author chats with asking how you got into writing stories sure um i've always wanted to be a writer i wanted to be a writer since i was a kid uh and then um I sent my first novel out when I graduated from college so i was about 22 years old and it took about five years uh, to get published. And I actually sold my third written novel. I wasn't able to sell the first two, but my third one, I was able to sell to Simon Schuster in 1999. And it was published in 2001. And ever since then, I've been a full-time author. Yeah. And you've written so many books. <laughs> uh, I think over 50 novels. I think that's what your uh, bio said. Uh, and it spans so many genres. You've written for adults, middle grade, uh, young adult. And, you know, you've written for fantasy, contemporary. Uh, what is it like juggling so many projects at once? Yeah, you know, I think I got lucky because I, uh, you know, while my first novel was an adult book, uh, Right after it was published, Simon Schuster asked me if I wanted to try my hand at young adult. Uh, they thought that my voice would lend itself well to kind of this new uh, kind of burgeoning genre. And I said, OK, you know, uh, they asked me, they said, have you read Gossip Girl or Sisterhood of Traveling Pants? And I said, yes, I had. And I love them. 
And I was writing my first YA book called The Au Pairs. And while I was writing it, I thought, oh my God, this is what I'm supposed to do. I am actually, you know, the perfect writer for YA. And I wrote about 16 YA books before going back to writing a grown-up book. Um, and I think in YA, because it's children's, you know, you are allowed to uh, explore different genres. You know, so I wrote a contemporary, I wrote uh, urban fantasy, I wrote uh, second world fantasy, uh, you know, I wrote middle grade mysteries and, you know, fun books like The Click. Uh, I had a book, called, a book series called The Ashleys. And, you know, and some of these books come out, you know, every three months. So that's why there are so many books uh, <laughs> that I've published so many books. I've actually published, I just counted 67. So oh, wow. A, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I do have several series going on at once. So that's, you know, uh, that's kind of why it adds to the uh, to the book count. <laughs> How do you uh, keep track of all of your projects? Like, do you have everything on like Scribner, like with different folders, or are you like a bullet journal journaler? Do you have like a binder full of like different stories so that you can uh, keep track of everything? Uh, no, <laughs> I actually <laughs> my my biggest nightmare is that I've forgotten a book. Like, I literally have nightmares where, you know, a book is due and I had completely forgotten I'd sold it, completely forgotten it was due. So that's like, you know, how you have nightmares about like showing up for the final and then study. So my nightmare is I've forgotten a project that I've sold and it's due now. <laughs> um, so I'm like the most disorganized person. So it's always kind of uh, shocking to me that I, I can keep this going. So I have like, you know, little notes on my computer and, uh, but nothing at all organized. Like if I ever, <laughs> if I ever lose the note, you know, uh, in my notes app that has all the, all the books and when they're due, I think that would be really terrible. I do have an Excel sheet. So I have an Excel sheet of um, when the projects are due and uh, when the contracts are signed. So I have some some kind of a little bit of organization that way. But you know, mostly. You know, I think everything's on my calendar. So I kind of keep, you know, somebody said, you know, making a to-do list is not the way to get things done. Nothing gets done unless it's on the calendar. So I kind of follow that religiously, you know, so I remind myself, you know, what to do and what I have to work on. Uh, like today, I have a bunch of outlines that I'm working on that I also have a final draft that I have to work on. So that's on my calendar. And then I can look ahead and see what else is due, you know, in the coming weeks or months. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I mostly work on things by procrastinating on something else. So I always work on the thing that feels the least painful, like the least pressure. So I always work on the book that's not due. <laughs> and a book that's due is always trying to like hang in there being like, hey. Your editor wants this in a week. When are we going to get to me? You know, I feel so represented right now because <laughs> I am so happy to hear that such a prolific, successful author like Melissa, like me, also has trouble finding one method to keep organized. Because I can't tell you how many times at the beginning of the year, I said, this is the year I'm going to actually use the planner that I bought. And it never happens. No. <laughs> Yeah. And also on top of, you know, 
writing your own books, you launched your own imprint with Disney Publishing, uh, and you're in charge of pretty much recruiting other authors and, you know, producing their stories. So how has that transition been? Yeah, you know, it really took up all my free time. I told my agent, you ruined my life. <laughs> you know? Oh, you have because- free time, even <laughs> yeah, even though you write all yeah, those books. Even, you know, when I was writing the books, I would always have like a little time to myself. But now I, I, you know, I actually do not have any time because in my free time, now I run the studio. So, um, but it's fun. You know, I, I have a lot of ideas. Ideas have never been a problem for me. I always have a lot more books that I want to write. That I don't have time for. So that's kind of why I started the studio. And I had the studio before Disney. Um, I had a small packaging company uh, that my husband and I ran. And, uh, and then we were basically looking to kind of expand it uh, with, with, with a partner. And, uh, and that's how we ended up at Disney. Uh, but yeah, but you know, I have a full team at Disney that's supporting me. So in a way, uh, it's, it's actually, you know, it's a lot of work, but not really because I have a lot of hands helping and, you know, and I, it's just not on me to recruit the writers. You know, Disney, you know, definitely has their feelers out. and My agent has his feelers out. Um, and then, you know, we just find the right writer with the right idea and it's all magic. So, you know, uh, it's been really it's been really fun. Um, I really like working uh, with, you know, kind of young uh, debut writers, you know, even though you know, young is not about the age, it's kind of age of publication, you know, is more how we see it. So yeah, no, it's been great. It's been really kind of, uh, it's been a dream uh, to work with Disney and to be part of, you know, uh, their mandate to create more uh, kind of diverse uh, stories, but are also filled with that, you know, kind of uh, Disney magic. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me that you've been writing books for a long time now, but yes. in the grand scheme of like literature, it really hasn't been that long. But, you know, since we since we started this podcast in 2016, we've also noticed that there's been our book news segment has been getting longer and longer like every year. And there's been like a noticeable increase in like the stories that we're uh, announcing, um, especially in like young reader, kid lit YA space. Um, how have you seen the industry change as someone who's like been there for, for a long time? Yeah. You know, when I was starting out, when I was querying, uh, you know, so my first book uh, was about uh, three Asian girls who were living in New York City. That was the one that didn't get sold. But I remember when I was querying, you know, the only, you know, kind of commercial Asian American author that I could compare myself to was Amy Tan, you know, and my query letter said, you know, I, I love Amy Tan. I love the Joy Luck Club. You know, there are a lot more uh, stories uh, in the Asian community. And, you know, it's not just these stories of tragedy or, you know, um, not getting along with your parents, you know, that's certainly her specific story, but it's not all of our story. So my argument was always like, I would love to see some stories with Asian girls who are from happy families and functioning, (laughs) you know, relationships with our mothers and, you know, just being, you know, uh, you know, kind of the cool kids or, uh, you know, like the Wakefield twins, you know, I just didn't want to have that burden of having to represent, you know, kind of this tragic, background when you know certainly i was an immigrant but you know it wasn't in this full of sorrow 
So, so in that, I think we've really come a long way. And even 10 years ago, I remember at Comic-Con, I would be the only, you know, person of color or a person of Asian origin on Comic-Con panels, you know, it'd be like five white guys and me. And that was kind of my experience for a long time, even the first 10 years in publishing. And I think in the last 10 years, we've really seen the growth and it's so great to see so many other stories, you know, being published by Asian American writers, you know, writing fantasy and writing contemporary or, you know, writing middle grade, you know. Um, yeah. So I think uh, we've definitely, definitely come a long way. I think there's a lot more people uh, in power maybe with, uh, you know, a budget <laughs> that can buy our stories. And I think we've proven that, you know, these stories are something that readers want, that there's a market for them. Um, and certainly there's a hunger for them, which is, uh, which is really great to see, you know, just, you know, learning about other mythologies and other stories, you know, I wrote blue bloods, which was a very, you know, uh, rooted in, you know, kind of American foundation, you know, the Mayflower. Um, and I wrote that, you know, as an immigrant, cause I love the story of the founding of American. I, was really interested in writing that story. But also back then, I don't think people would have been interested in a book that I'm writing now. Uh, I have a book called The Encando's Daughter, which is coming out next year, which is uh, rooted in Filipino mythology and, you know, Filipino fairies. And, you know, that's, let's see, I wrote, that's literally 20 years after I started writing Blue Bloods. So it's, it's kind of cool to get to this moment. Yeah. And I mean, authors these days have the benefit of someone like you who's been in the industry for so long as like someone to like model their careers and i guess i always feel weird going back to this very basic question when talking to asian american um creatives but like like we mentioned when you started out it was a very different you know environment you know how was your support when you were getting into deciding to make writing your career were your parents supportive or did you get support from like friends or colleagues um my parents, you know, were always supportive of my creative endeavors when I was younger. You know, they were both bankers. I come from a family and they're all MBAs. I'm the weird sister. I'm the only artist in the family. Um, and uh, but because I was the only creative, but my parents really admired creativity. And in a way that was like such a great um, boost to my confidence because they thought like people who were creative were amazing and like magical. I mean. They loved plays. We went to the theater all the time. They loved art. They loved music, but they couldn't make it themselves. So anybody who could make that stuff, like they it really held in high esteem, which I guess maybe for Asians is not, you know, like, why didn't they want me to be a lawyer? And, you know, they did actually sort of want me to be a lawyer when I was in college. They said, OK, well, what are you going to do now? You know, and I said, well, my friends are going to law school, so maybe I'll, you know, uh, maybe I'll go to law school. And they were like, great, you know, she, she can support herself. Um, but what ended up happening was I actually had a day job. I didn't go to law school because I thought, you know, if I went to law school, then I would be a lawyer and I would never have time to be a writer. And I really didn't want to get down this path that was so all consuming and then, you know, not do what I really wanted to do. So I had a day job in New York for 10 years. So I supported myself and my artistic endeavors by having a day job. Um, which, which was great. And, you know, from that, I was able to write for small magazines, small newspapers, you know, and like, you know, uh, meet people, uh, 
definitely cold called people. I just found a book called The Writer's Market and it had a list of, you know, all the agencies, you know, and what kind of writing they represented and literally just sent my book out to 25 of the agents and then six of them offered to represent me. And then of the six, I picked, you know, the most experienced. And he was someone who he wasn't able to sell the book, but he was able to introduce me to an editor at Simon and Schuster, who then encouraged uh, my career. And uh, Jeff Klosky, who's now the head of Riverhead, uh, back then was a young editor, and he had discovered David Sedaris, um, Dave Eggers, uh, and uh, you know he was just really kind of instrumental and in kind of guiding me. So he was like, "You should write for magazines because nobody's going to buy a novel from somebody who has not even written professionally." So I thought, okay, so I did that. And then when I was able, you know, when I had my third novel, he turned down the first two novels. And then the third one, he really liked, uh, and he actually wanted to bid on it. But because it was about, it was kind of, it came out, or at least we sold it before Bridget Jones, you know, so it was kind of seen as this women's fiction. There was a female editor at Simon Schuster who really, really wanted to do it. So he said, so he gave it to Ari. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I felt really supported. I felt, you know, that um, very encouraged in my writing from my family and friends. And I think that kind of confidence level was, you know, um, I was able to kind of, you know, not fall, not get too discouraged by the rejections, you know, after I wasn't able to sell my first or second novel. Um, or, you know, <laughs> I didn't even get into a, an MFA writing program. <laughs> so, uh you know, people are always saying, how did you, uh, you know, how did you get past that? How do you keep going? And I said, well, I just thought they were all wrong, you know, and I would prove them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spite is definitely a good spite fuel. Yeah. Is great. <laughs> um, so, like, you've written so many books, and a lot of them um, feature Filipino-American protagonists. Um, is there a difference when you come, when it comes to writing a character that has the same background as you, as opposed to uh, writing a white character or other ethnic protagonists, because I know, like for uh, your other book, Twenty Nine Dates, uh, it it was a Korean American protagonist. Yeah, no, certainly, you know, it's definitely easier when you write a character from your same background. Although, uh, with something in between, you know, I'd already written my family's immigration story. I wrote a YA novel called Fresh Off the Boat that came out in 2005. So it was almost 10 years later when they were asking me to write something in between. And uh, it was through a partnership with Harlequin and Seventeen Magazine. And they wanted the novels to kind of reflect contemporary issues. Uh, so they wanted a story about an undocumented immigrant. And my family was not undocumented. Um, but we, but I'm, but my dad got his green card, uh, uh, late, uh, due to uh, a lawyer who'd scammed him. So by the time he had gotten his green card and we were here on his business visa, my sister and I were over the age of 21. So there was no rule. It, it was just a gray area of, um, our legality. So I was not, they told me I was not illegal, but on the other hand, um, I wasn't fully legal. It was just very weird gray area. And I was allowed to work, but I couldn't leave the country. So it was just this feeling of like being in limbo. And I didn't really want to feel that feeling again. So at first I didn't really want to write the book because I was like, oh, I don't want to write it. And, you know, bring up all these kind of sad and conflicted and weird feelings about whether I was American or not. 
Um, but in the end, I decided to write it. Um, and the protagonist is actually based on a friend of mine from high school who was a cheerleader and, uh, you know, wanted to be a doctor. And she was so much more organized than I was. And, uh, and people always ask me if I'm Jasmine. I'm like, nope, there's no way I'm Jasmine. <laughs> She's way more together than I am. Um, and then with 29 Dates, uh, it's actually based on or inspired by the story of my sister-in-law who uh, immigrated to uh, San Diego when she was a teenager alone. And I thought that was so amazing. And it's a practice in Korean families to send their kids on their own to America, you know, as foreign students uh, to immigrate that way. And she was here for two years before her mom moved over, which I thought was just amazing. And so when I wrote that, uh, Christina, you know, helped me and made sure that everything was, you know, correct, you know, Korean wise, I wanted to make sure that, you know, felt authentic in that way. And I don't think I would have felt like I could have written that um, if she wasn't, you know, making sure uh, that it was accurate. Yeah, I think writing outside of your own experience, that's something that uh, comes up a lot in publishing, like who has the right to tell uh, which story, but like, we don't really put that standard on, uh, I, I guess, like on BIPOC authors who write white characters, because it's like they already <laughs> like, like well, there's... I think we all know that, you know, I mean, we grew up reading that. And, you know, I mean, white is the default for a person, you know what I mean? So I think it is. It's just different. Yeah, you know? it's definitely different because yeah. like white white authors, obviously, like they have not lived through uh, mm-hmm. like a lot of our own experiences of being a minority in this country. And it's and it's so it, it's such a wide uh, range of subgenres, too, because uh, yeah. some of us are some of us are immigrants. Some of them some of us are first gen. And depending on yeah. what what ethnic community you are and where you're from in, in like the States, all of your experiences are going to vary. So yeah. Um, Absolutely. So I think we've gone on long enough without talking about your latest <laughs> book. Um, can you give us, can you give us a short elevator pitch on one of us is lying? Uh, sorry. You mean going dark? The headmaster's list. The headmaster's yeah. list. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> yeah. headmaster's list. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. One of Us is Lying is uh, Karen McManus's book. She's great. Oh, I didn't goodness. write it. Also the tagline in your book. That's probably where. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. I was looking at the tagline and then I like, yeah. messed up. Yeah. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Um, so the headmaster's list is a mystery concerning a fatal cra- car crash. So it's set in L.A. and kind of the private school world. And uh, there are four kids in the car and three of them survive and one is dead. And uh, Spencer, uh, who is uh, who is one of the girls in the car, who's the kind of the main survivor and the main uh, protagonist, you know, thinks that there's something that she doesn't quite remember, that there's more to the crash uh, than she's being told. So she goes about to try to figure out what happened and, uh, you know, uh, if Ethan was really driving, who was driving and what happened with the car? Was it really an accident? And in telling the story, you find out about all the class uh, and racial issues at their school. You know, there's a group called the Headmasters List, which is kind of like an honor society um, of, you know, kind of academic and success oriented students. But then there's also, you know, the secret Headmasters List, which is about the donors of the school, you know, the rich parents. So so it's a book that was kind of inspired by, you know, um, being a parent <laughs> at an L.A. private school. 
and uh, kind of seeing, you know, kind of the the politics that go in it. And we had a couple of uh, very sad uh, fatal car crashes in our school that also. Uh, so I wanted to talk about that and the grief and the mourning that uh, comes from that. But I didn't want to write about, you know, specifically what happened to the school. But it kind of made me think about like, oh, what if I wrote about, you know, um, something terrible that happened to these kids? Just you know, felt like for a while we were just kind of, you know, just reeling from a bunch of things. And one of our students was ran over on Melrose uh, here in LA right after graduation. Um, and then another really sad fatal car crash. So it was just kind of in my mind. Um, one, one of the things that happened and then another thing that happened too was one of my nephews, uh, one of the kids on his basketball team, uh, that we had grown up with, uh, and kind of knew, uh, not well, but you know, he was in the community. He was driving his dad's Mercedes down Ventura at 120 miles an hour and hit, uh, two cars and killed two people. And, you know, and he was a 17 year old kid and he wasn't on drugs. He wasn't, um, uh, drunk, you know, it was just, you know, utter recklessness. And, uh, and part of the, things that we went through as a community was like, oh my God, how could we have raised a kid like this? Somebody, you know, who, who took people's lives, you know, took, killed the father, you know, killed somebody's mom. And, uh, and that really stayed with me. So that was a couple of years ago. And I knew I wanted to write something about that. So the headmaster's list is kind of about all those things, <laughs> about reckless kids and, you know, terrible rich parents. <laughs> um. Yeah, like speaking of terrible rich parents, um, (laughs) you're like you said, like your book is set in a private high school for the wealthy in L.A. Um, And this isn't your first book that's set in a private high school. Uh, And I know that you were uh, a scholarship student at a private high school. Like, did you draw from your own experiences when you were uh, writing Spencer's character? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a line uh, in the book where she says, I'm just a happy brown face with Armstrong prep. And, you know, you definitely feel like that because I, I was a scholarship student. My sister and I were kind of famously the smartest kids at our private school. Uh, and it, it was kind of funny because I just met somebody who remembered us. She was a mom of a friend of a friend. And uh, she said, oh, my God, you went to convent. Oh, my God, you guys were like so famous. And we were, but we were also the ones who were kind of shoved in front as like, oh, look at how great we are. We've given these, you know, smart brown kids an education. And, you know, so you just feel like, you know, I was very privileged to be there, but you also feel like you're like this mascot. And it's just kind of a weird feeling of always being grateful, but then also resentful, you know, because I actually... I actually hated my high school. (laughs) (laughs) High school was a terrible time, but I loved my teachers and I loved where they got me to go. You know, uh, um, my college counselor was the one who said, you know, I would really love Columbia. And she was really pushing me to go to Columbia. She probably got me into Columbia with her recommendation. Um, You know, so I, so I can see, you know, how it utterly benefited me and changed my life. But on the other hand, you know, it was so hard to be at a school where you were so different. You know, my classmates, uh, the school was in San Francisco in the Pacific Heights area, one of the most affluent areas in the city. You know, and we were commuting in, you know, my friend, 
and I, my classmates, <laughs> I, you know, were the ones walking up and down the hill. You know, they just lived down the street, you know. Um, so it was just this kind of disconnect. And, you know, it wasn't the nicest uh, group of kids, you know, and maybe it was, you know, and high school is a hard time to move. I'm just, everybody matures and becomes, you know, kinder. I would say, but back then it was pretty brutal. <laughs> I wouldn't wish it on my enemy. <laughs> uh, we mentioned social media briefly, and I just want to like talk about how interesting it is that you came out with another thriller about like a month or two months before Headmaster's List. It's called mm-hmm. Go Dark, and it's going about dark. a uh, yep. yeah, Going Dark. It's uh, and it's about an influencer who vanishes after going on vacation with her boyfriend. Uh, I just thought it was interesting how you have two books that are thrillers that have uh, people who are pretty much solving mysteries through social media. Uh, Where did that inspiration come from? And was it really hard to, um, I guess, like outline both of these books at the same time? Uh, No, I didn't work on them at the same time. They came out at the same time, but um, I had written Headmaster's List. Uh, and that book, uh, like I said, was on my mind for several years uh, before I wrote it. So that was like a very old uh, project. Um, and uh, Going Dark uh, was written really quickly. Uh, I had gotten this idea for it and uh, and we sold it quickly. I think from idea to publication, it was just several months and not several years. So it was uh, kind of weird that they came out at the same time. Um, uh, going That's publishing is a, for you. <laughs> yeah, is a is a new adult book. Um, so it's not it's not technically a YA, uh, and so we were like, oh, well, you know, uh, so so that's why. And it and it came out. So I wrote it actually after, but it came out first. So um, who knows? Um, and uh, yeah, I wanted to write about you know, uh, going dark. It was a little bit inspired by the Gappy Petito story. You know, I was just so shocked at how much level of detail I knew about that case. You know, like the media was just relentless and just overwhelming and just, you know, every part of that, of her life and that case and the relationship, the timeline, you know, we knew like there was so much attention and so much detail. And that really struck me, you know, seeing that versus, you know, learning about other women and women of color who had gone missing and we didn't know anything about them. We didn't know anything about, you know, how they went missing or, you know, anything about their lives, who even just suspects would be. So it just really just, you know, kind of landed in a way to me that made me very angry. Like why are some, you know, some cases, you know, given so much of a spotlight and some completely ignored. So I wanted to write about that. Um, and it was also inspired by uh, a family that I knew, uh, because uh so amelia is the influencer who goes missing and she presents as a white girl you know she's blonde and has western features and then there's you know we find out there's another girl who went missing who is asian and there was a family i'm probably kind of spoiling the book a little but uh, (laughs) there's a family uh that i knew my friend was and they were uh half chinese and half spanish and one of the sisters was very uh uh, white looking. She was very mestiza. She had blonde hair, you know, very light skin and green eyes. And her sister was very uh, Asian looking. You know, she had black hair, you know, dark eyes. And, you know, they would always laugh that people didn't know that they were sisters because they looked so different. 
And so I think if I didn't know that family, I would not have been able to write the book because to me that was like, you know, it's a huge part of the mystery. So, yeah. Yeah. Like with social media, it's very funny because you can timeline everything and you see uh, Spencer and Jackson do just that. They're going through all of their uh, classmates, like Snapchats and uh, Instagrams. And I was like, wow, what a strange world that we live in that we can just like track everyone's movements yeah. and, mean, and just like discover uh, the, things about themselves yeah i mean my my kid told told me about the snap map you know the snapchat map where you can see where your friends are and if they're hanging out without you i mean in real time you can see it and i said stuff is just so wrong you know i mean that is so hard on kids um there's just all this information that people really should not have. I don't think it's good for anybody's mental health, you know? And, you know, you, as, you know, as the person in your room and then you see three of your friends, you know, out at the mall or something, that can't feel good, you know? And it's going to happen to everybody because, like, inevitably, somebody's not going to be invited to something, you know? And that's just life. But now it's, like, in your face. Uh, whereas, you know, before, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know that our friends were hanging out. <laughs> Yeah, before it's like if your friend flakes on you, you you believe yes. them for maybe like a week. But now it's yeah. like, oh, you were at this other party or you exactly. were hanging out with this other person. Yeah. You canceled on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but one of my favorite things about the Headmasters list, uh, and I think this is because like we're also a podcast. Um, there were transcripts from a true crime podcast. Uh, run by a fellow Armstrong prep student. And I just thought it was a very clever way to uh, weave in the exposition. Where did that idea come from? And do you also listen to any true crime podcasts? I actually don't listen to true crime podcasts. Um, uh, but I did. Uh, but I knew about them and my friends tell me about them. So I feel like I've known enough about it. And I wanted so I wanted to have the podcast because so much of life now is like living the life and then seeing the comments about what's happening. You know, like I'll watch a show, then I want to see the recaps and I will see the comments. So it was a way to comment on the story while being in the story. So I wanted that element of the storytelling uh, to kind of ape, you know, our life now. Yeah, like with uh, Peyton, the host of the podcast, uh, Stay Salty, um, mm -hmm. I, I was just like, wow, this kid like really is a professional podcaster. It like has sponsors, has merch. <laughs> I was like, wow. And only a high schooler. I was like, wow. Like, <laughs> like they're, they're probably doing a better job than we are. So I thought it was, uh, I thought it was like very interesting. Yeah. Like I was really like, you got the, um, the cadence of like the podcast banter down. <laughs> and, you know, I, I love that you explore not only like the presence of pod, like true crime podcasts, true crime media, but also like the exploitative nature of those shows as well. Like how much research did you do into, like, did you listen to a lot of these shows before like writing your version of it? Uh, I read, I, so I like to read. So I read podcast transcripts, um, but really, you know, I just, I just kind of made it up. <laughs> I, I, I just kind of like, you know, I wanted it to be having kind of this gossipy, tone um and a couple of my friends were gossip columnists you know back in the day so i kind of imagined them as podcast hosts um and you know at first i actually wrote it um and they were adults 
But then they were obsessed with these high school kids. So my editor found it a little creepy. And she was like, what if they're like high school kids and they're in high school also? I said, oh, right. That makes that makes more sense. It is kind of creepy. We have these two kind of uh, middle-aged ladies <laughs> talking about these high school kids. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually listened to your book on through an audiobook, And the way that they produced it was they actually produced those podcast segments like podcasts with like different voice actors and background music. Um, did you have any input on that? Or was that all like the audiobook producers? Yeah, no, they got really excited to do it that way. They told me they were going to do that. I said, oh, that's so cool. So yeah, no that that was them being their own bringing their own creativity to it. So I was I was really excited about that. Yeah, I mean Marvin briefly mentioned uh, how like these true crime uh, content creators can really like take advantage of um, other people's sufferings. I guess, um, and you're a former journalist, so uh, my question is like, how do you think it's best to balance that line between like journalism? and exploitation like when investigation bleeds into invasion of privacy yeah I, th- I think it's a really it's a hard line to cross and i don't think i would be able to do it i was more of a style journalist i did a lot of soft <laughs> very soft features <laughs> you know um yeah you know i i definitely you know the, there's definitely a line where you want to get the news and you want to get the truth but you know you are kind of being no in somebody's life and trying to get them to spill. Um, but even with the soft news that I did, I remember, and there's always an agenda. I mean, it's funny because my husband was like, you work for magazines, you know, it's so much of it is fake. And yet you believe all the other stories in magazines. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, I know how the sausage is made, but I still like to, you know, eat the sausage. So, um, uh, like at Marie Claire, you know, I was, I had a gig and we would kind of, we, you know, we would try to do these kind of funny stories. And one of them was, you know, they wanted to profile women who wanted to marry ambitious men, you know, and it was literally, you know, a gold digger story. And it was like, how do you find women to say that they want to do that? You know? Um, And, you know, that was the one story where I did feel a little bit, like, oh my goodness, you know, we are trying to get these women to say something or, you know, to admit something that they probably wouldn't admit, you know, so I did feel kind of uncomfortable about it, you know, but on the other hand, it was like a photo shoot, they looked great, you know, but one of the one of the women, you know, did say, she was like, huh, this wasn't quite what I signed up for. And I was like, I'm sorry. You know, I was very young then. I was in my 20s and one of my first articles. So you know, um, I think I would say I do kind of regret it. I don't think I would have done it. I I don't think it's something I would do now. Yeah, I think it's a lot harder now considering that mm-hmm. there's so many layoffs and there's like this pressure for people to like make clickbaits and sensational sensationalize a lot of news. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but moving on, um, Ripley was probably... The most arguably the best character in this book, or at least like the most adorable character in this book. Um, How much research did you do on service dogs and like their effect on people with PTSD? Yeah, um, I I did a lot of research on it and I researched PTSD. Um, I, you know, have a little bit of a 
we didn't have a service dog, but uh, we went through some therapy for uh, a traumatic event. Um, and uh, yeah, so I knew about that uh, part of it. Um, and I love dogs anyway. So yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I, I didn't need a service dog, but I knew about what they, you know, you know, how they help people. So yeah, I wanted to make sure it was accurate too. Uh, was there any part of uh, your research that, you know, really surprised you? Like, for example, like I thought, like, I'm not an expert on traffic laws or uh, just like how car accident cases work. Um, so like, was there any anything surprising in your research that you were like, oh, I didn't know that this yeah. this was a thing? <laughs> No, I had to make sure that, you know, it all uh, made sense legally. Uh, and I have a friend in uh, who's a prosecutor in a DA's office and he helps me with those things. So he had he, so I kind of sent him the book and mark all the kind of legal issues. And he says, yep, yep. Or nope. So, you know, one of the things that I had to make sure, you know, like, uh, because if any if anybody's at all inebriated or above the limit, there's not even a case at all. You know, like it doesn't even go to trial. Like if your uh, blood alcohol level is um, more than the legal limit, like you're guilty. One like there's there's no trial. So I had to make sure that you know that that was factored in and that was part of the plot. So yeah, I go back and I'm like you know like go over all the plot holes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's the the legal aspects of it is definitely like a big, uh, like it, it's a big plot. It's it's what puts a deadline on Spencer and Jackson's uh, investigation. So yes, <laughs> the the fact that you uh, consulted a district attorney doesn't uh, like it makes total sense to me. And also, like it sounds a little bit. Uh, scary because it's like if you got it wrong you would have to uh, figure out like the timeline and rewrite your entire plot exactly exactly no that was one of my nightmares I was like make sure that all makes sense you know and that was one of the things that I was like really uh, watching as the book went through you know the the editing stages yeah I'm sure this is like the result of your your many years of experience writing books but I thought that your thriller mystery was so well paced. You you give us red herrings, you um give us betrayals, you give us like just it was such a page turner. And I, I wanna I wanna ask like in terms of when you're writing, when you're plotting out a thriller, mystery thriller like this, like what is what do you keep in mind to like keep the action moving? Yeah, um I outline everything. So I kind of know things in advance, but you know, so I did have a, an ending. But I actually changed the ending. So when the book came back to me, so I wrote it, I turned it in, I worked on other things. And then when it came back to me, I was able to read it with fresh eyes. Like you really need some time away from your book to almost read it like a reader. So I was reading it and I was like, and then so anything that was boring, I tightened or I cut, um, you know, like kind of at the final read, you are looking at that pacing. And, and you know, the, the ending just didn't set, sit well with me. I really felt like, um, I could do better. So I actually rewrote the ending at the very end. And I told my editor, you know, it just doesn't feel like exciting enough. So, um, so I came up with another ending, which I liked a lot better. 
So, um, yeah, yeah. Well, so sometimes the book comes at the end, you know, <laughs> I mean, the very end, like right before we were going to production. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll say your ending is very exciting. and I've never felt so betrayed in my life. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Speaking of changes, um, was the title always Headmaster's List or did you have a different title? Oh, yeah, no, that was the title. And, you know, the funny oh. thing is I actually my first uh, stab at this project was I was going to write it as uh, from the point of view of the parents. So I wanted to do kind of like a a Big Little Lies version uh, of this. But then when I was writing it, I realized that I write mostly for teens and I actually write about teens and the camera was in the wrong place. So I scrapped that version and then wrote this one. But it was always called the Headmaster's List, which is what the honor roll is called at my kids' high school. So, <laughs> But it's fictional. <laughs> yeah. So as we come to the end of our conversation again, so such an honor to speak with you, Melissa. Hope to let's not wait another six years to talk. Like let's <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I have um, many books coming out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, is there anything you can talk? What's what's next? I know you probably have like so many irons in the fire, but what's coming up soon for, for you? Uh well, actually this week I have a new uh fairy tale retelling that's out. It's called Snow and Poison. And it is inspired by the real stories uh, behind the Snow White mythology. So it's set in 17th century Bavaria, uh, where uh, it's based, the Snow White story is based on two uh, kind of uh, historical figures. One was uh, a duchess in Bavaria who was poisoned by the king of Spain because his son was in love with her, but he didn't want his son to marry her. He wanted his son to marry the English princess. So that's one part of the story. And then the other, uh, the other historical uh, figure that is in Snow White that inspired Snow White. It, that was, there was a duchess in Bavaria who was said to be a witch who would talk to uh, her mirror. So that's where those two kind of legends uh, kind of came together and gave us a Snow White uh, fairy tale. Um, so this is kind of a historical Snow White story. Wow. It sounds completely like my jam because I love <laughs> oh, I love fairy tales. I love fairy tale retellings and I love just like historical fiction as well. So it sounds like okay. it has so many things that I, I love. So I'm very excited. Awesome. <laughs> Nothing like some European monarchy intrigue to get your get your blood yeah. going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Bulba. And um, yeah, we hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that was our author chat with Melissa De La Cruz. Her book, The Headmaster's List, among others, can be found now at booksellers everywhere, uh, including the Books and Bulba bookshop. As always, you can find all the books that we discuss on our podcast in our online bookstore, where any purchase will not only help your local bookstores, but also us here at Books and Bulba. And another great way to support us is to join our new Patreon, which we launched about a month ago. Uh, your support is greatly appreciated and will help us grow our Books and Bulba coverage so we can do more to support um, books by Asian and Asian American authors. As a Patreon supporter, you'll have access to our brand new Books and Bulba Discord, where you can chat with your fellow club members about all sorts of topics. 
And if you support us at the Honey Boba member level, um, you'll also get access to our special Boba Chat episodes. Uh, this month's Boba Chats will feature some of the audio we captured at the Festival of AAPI Books that took place last weekend in Long Beach that Rira and I attended. Uh, to support our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash booksmboba. And so before we go, just a quick reminder that our May 2023 book club pick is The Fortunes of Jaded Women by Carolyn Quinn, um, a story about a family of Vietnamese-American women and the family curse they need to overcome to find happiness. By all accounts, it's a great book, and I can't wait to discuss it with you all um, on Goodreads, on Discord, and for our end-of-month discussion episode. And that's it. A huge thank you to Melissa De La Cruz for being on our show. Um, we were so happy to get her finally um, after so many years of covering her books. And thank you all for listening in as well. Uh, we'll be back next week with our May mid-month check-in um, going over the latest Asian American book and publishing news. So until then, I hope you all have a great latter half of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Ryan, what's black and white and red all over? I don't know, Robin. Two nuns having a chainsaw fight? Dude, inappropriate. Come on, man. This is supposed to be a podcast promo for our secret underground podcast, Quarantine Comics. Oh, yes. Quarantine Comics, the weekly comic book club where I, ace reporter Ryan Joe, and I, mild-mannered Robin Sutton, team up to discuss some of comics' greatest works. Or just some really cool comics that we've been wanting to read. From Alan Moore to Uzumaki. From Maracas to Zendaya. From Adrian Tomine to Jean Lunyang. You might might not have heard of half the stuff that we're reading. Or the other half is just pop culture superhero stuff. They could just read the books with us, right? Yes, they could do that, but you could also just send us money. No, Ryan, that's not how passion podcast projects work. Why in the hell are we even doing this? Uh, I'm sure we'll be back by next week's episode. <clears throat> so, tune in each week to Quarantine Comics. That's qtdcomics.com. Set phasers to fire.